Welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio with your host, Beth Green. This is James Maynard, your co-host. This week's topic, income inequality is destroying our nation and tearing us apart. What can we do about it? Josh Hoxie returns with strategies. Let's talk. On June 30th, many of us were shocked by what we learned. We interviewed Josh Hoxie of inequality.org, and he presented a picture about growing income inequality that is worse than most of us had realized. Income inequality is out of control, and it's threatening our economy, our health, and our social cohesion. We see its symptoms every day in this polarized political season. It has consequences for us all, black, white, Hispanic, men, women, gay, straight, whoever we are. It's actually even bad for the rich. This time, we're asking Josh to come back and talk to us about why income inequality has worsened and what we can do about it. We can't wait for the rich and powerful to have a spiritual awakening and change the world. We need to learn, to discuss, and to mobilize if this situation is ever to change. People like Donald Trump have seized upon people's economic and social pain for their own purposes. Let's stop fighting among ourselves and take back this issue for us and our children. And now, here's Beth. Hi, welcome everybody. I'm so glad to be here. So glad that you're going to be here. And uh, right now, and I'm sure that I'm not supposed to disclose this, we can't find our guest. Now, don't hang up because we have a great show ahead of us anyway. <laughs> and he'll probably show up because one way or the other, we're going to be talking about different strategies to deal with income inequality. And we're also going to be talking about how income inequality is kind of bubbling up from the, you know, under the surface that's underlying everything that's going wrong in our world today. I'm not saying it's the only factor. I'm saying it's a really important one. So one way or the other, you stick around. But first, we have James with the news of the inner revolution. Okay, then. This has been another amazing week in the news. First, a couple of bits of good news. Listener Tracy shared an article from the BBC reporting that Gambia and Tanzania, two nations in Africa, have outlawed child marriage. In both countries, more than 30% of girls are married by the age of 18. In fact, in Gambia, anyone marrying a girl under 18 will now face 20 years in prison. This is an important step toward treating women as people rather than property. On a different topic, according to Washington Post article last week, more people are coming out and talking about mental illness, combating the stigma on freeing people to seek help. We are one, including the mentally ill. In fact, people with mental or emotional issues, plus addictions, probably represents the vast majority of us. Releasing the stigma of mental health issues is truly important, not only to the individuals involved, but to society. How can we deal with the mental illness aspect of gun violence if people are afraid to ask for help? So helping one helps us all. On another front, according to The Guardian this week, the Anglican Church of Canada reversed itself overnight and now supports same-sex marriage. The U.S. Episcopal Church, which is also Anglican, had already stepped forward to support same-sex marriage and had been isolated in doing so. So this is, a big, this is big news for those fighting for oneness in the Anglican Church. Now this is a mind-blowing piece of news coming up too. Misty K. Snow became the first major party transgender candidate for the U.S. Senate when she won the Democratic nomination in Utah on June the 28th. Wow. And she's a Bernie Sanders supporter, by the way. 
And the final snippet of news is that the Huffington Post reported that a group of Senate Democrats took to the floor this week to confront the many-headed dragon of climate change denial. They're calling out more than 30 different organizations that are, quote, either co-opted or created by the fossil fuel industry in order to propagate climate change denial while obscuring the true hand of the fossil fuel industry in their efforts, unquote. More evidence that we are striking a blow for accountability and mutual support. But of course, the news cycle has been dominated by the upcoming Republican convention and the nation's anguish over police killings of black men, the increasing attacks on police, and the heightened racist rhetoric. According to the Washington Post just today, in the midst of all this, President Barack Obama held a meeting of 33 people to deal with the problems by actually communicating. Obama presided over the meeting and encouraged the men and women in the room to share their ideas. Initially, the gathering, which White House officials had scrambled to assemble, was fairly formal. After about an hour, recalled J.B. Jennings, a Republican who serves as minority leader of the Maryland State Senate, people got comfortable and began to speak their mind and say what they really felt. Attendees, even some who had been skeptical of the utility of such a meeting, described an unsparingly frank discussion in which police, protesters, academics, and the president hashed out many of the disagreements currently playing out across the nation. Speaking to reporters later, Obama made the point that while the problems the group grapples with is not, quote, going to be solved overnight, but what we can do is to set up the kinds of respectful conversations that we've had here, not just in Washington, but around the country, so that we institutionalize a process of continually getting better and holding ourselves accountable and holding ourselves responsible for getting better. It is thought that Obama will probably reconvene his White House task force on 21st century policing and launch a town hall series, perhaps spearheaded by the Department of Justice, in cities that have seen unrest over police killings, as well as cities where police have identified best practices and implemented reforms. We certainly hope so. We at Interrevolutionary Radio really believe that when people stop shouting and start talking, there's a chance we'll come to understand one another and come from oneness rather than fear and hostility. And speaking about talking... I just want to let you know that our guest is here, or will be. So yeah. I'm very... <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. So, okay, those of you who are going to hang up because you thought it was going to be me, forget about it. You can stay with us. Okay, continue, okay, James. There is no doubt that the recent shootings and their aftermath have foisted our attention on the long overdue conversation about racism in America. But just denouncing racism will not help until we also deal with the fears that underlie it. In the political arena, of course, we need to comment on Bernie Sanders' endorsement of Hillary Clinton that occurred this week. The endorsement was a celebration of the political movement that Bernie has helped ignite in our nation. In essence, he's saying that the Democrats and Hillary have adopted enough of a progressive agenda to warrant his endorsement and that we need to get behind her if we want to see any of these changes take place. There's a lot of truth to that. In addition, of course, the endorsement was a testament to how much fear there is of a potential Trump victory, with his deliberate stirring up of our fear of one another, and the easy answer of separating from one another, blaming and attacking one another. Sure, let's have blacks and whites attack one another, straight and gay, men and women, and let's all shoot ourselves in the foot, 
as the Trumps of the world make money and prance upon the world stage, distracting us with showbiz and promising us that the world will be restored to the good old days when men were men and women were women and marriage was between one of each and immigrants slaved away with no chance of protecting themselves from exploitation. Yeah, quite a trick, huh? Really. Anyway, if you have not looked at the Democratic and Republican platforms lately, you should. In our view, the Democratic platform is moving toward public health care, free public college education, and other examples of oneness, accountability, and mutual support. The Republican platform is supporting things like encouraging students in public schools to study the Bible, opposing same-sex marriage, and denying abortion under any circumstances and with no exceptions, which to us appears not like oneness, but like the domination of one religion above all others. We are in the midst of a terrible fight, and what is most terrible about it is that the sides can't stomach one another, much less talk and come together. That is why President Obama's meeting, bringing together activists and police officials and others to talk about race and the police, is such a shining spot. We at the interrevolution.org are doing everything we can at this point to help with the underlying issues splitting us apart. Our family program, for example, is going into the public schools to help kids, teachers, and administration help our young people get the healing they need to be able to find oneness with one another and end what we call antisocial behavior, behavior which we know is really a cry for help from those who already feel disempowered, even at such a young age. Our men's group is starting to hold meetings with other men to talk about men's socialization. Can you imagine that, men talking to men? That's just <laughs> not right. That's not natural. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like sharing authentically from deep within ourselves. Can't in- be. Intimately even. Yeah. And how that cripples. They must arts. be all gay. <laughs> no, we can say, I love you, man. Right. <laughs> and I can hug you like two A-frames, but uh, that's about it. <laughs> Uh, talk about men's socialization and how that cripples men and leads them into violence. Our couples group is organizing a workshop, by the way, to reach out to couples to help them find oneness themselves so that they can be a support for our world. And there's yes, more. It's really cool, isn't it? When we're talking about oneness in the world, we can't even get along with our mates. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so if you're interested, please check us out at theinnerrevolution.org. These programs are free. And we could use your time, your energy, and your financial support. Yay, financial support. <laughs> <laughs> a book. We'll take a book. Veronique got 27. We'll take one. There you go. <laughs> right. And follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash the inner rev. Beth? Well, speaking about facebook.com forward slash the inner rev, um, I have a new blog out on the Huffington Post this very week, and it's called As We Grieve the Continuing Racial Divide and Violence. Let us not forget to talk about men and violence. So uh, that was a perfect segue because, you know, I'm really talking about this very issue that our men are talking to other men about. It's like, how can we deny the fact that, you know, most violence is committed by men? Not to see that women can't be bitchy, too. But, uh, you know, why are men violent? And you can't just talk about the police or the blacks or the Hispanics or the white nationalists. I mean, there's a lot of violence in our society, and most of it is being uh, done by men. And there's something amiss. And 
we need to deal with that. It's just, see, we're always trying to get to what is the underlying issue? What is the underlying issue? So speaking about the underlying issues, uh, there's something here that I want to share with you. Um, well, first, a little humor. Okay, I mean, it's not funny, but it, it sort of is. You know that um, European leaders are furious that Boris Johnson has been appointed as the Foreign Secretary of England. And he was the guy, you know, he's kind of one of the leaders of leaving the European Union. I don't know if you people out there have been following this, but uh, Britain has um, voted in a referendum to leave the European Union. And a lot of it, I mean, is caused by income inequality and people's anguish and the thought that, oh, well, if, you know, if we leave the European Union, that'll solve everything. So it's kind of similar to what's going on in this country. Well, Boris Johnson is the former mayor of London. And he was one of the spokesmen. And he's kind of, I mean, I hate to be prejudicial, but he, he's sort of like the Donald Trump of England. And why I say that is not specifically about his political views, which we can agree with or disagree with, right? It's about the kinds of things that he says. Now, th- dig this. Mr. Johnson caused grave offense. Oh, by the way, it's the new uh, conservative British prime minister who has, uh, you know, uh, done this, appointed him. Mr. Johnson caused grave offense in Brussels and Washington during the referendum campaign. This is the referendum on whether England should leave. When he said that the EU, European Union, was an attempt by other means to unify Europe in a manner attempted by Adolf Hitler. Whoa! <laughs> I Whoa! Mean, there's, no, there's no innuendo there. Gee, I didn't notice that uh, uh, that uh, uh, Belgium had just been, uh, you know, uh, England had just been um, invaded by. Uh, oh, right, exactly. I think they're going to be building a wall between England and the English <laughs> Channel to make sure that no Europeans come. But now, dig this. It's not over. He also described President Obama as the part Kenyan president who harbored ancestral dislike of the British Empire. Oh, my God. Yeah. In a lengthy Facebook post hours before Johnson's appointment, Franz Timmermans, the European Commission's vice president, said such comments had spread hatred in a way he would not have believed possible in Britain. Would it not have been enough to say you disagree with the American president's point of view? Why discredit not just his motives, but even his persona with borderline racist remarks, he said. And let us not forget that it was Donald Trump himself who was pushing the birther movement to try to disqualify President Obama because he wasn't really an American, right? So this kind of horrible, you know, we have our political views. We we think certain things are more in the oneness than others, but we're certainly willing to talk to people about it. But this is the kind of thing that we just have to stop. Now, here is some information. One more little news item before we bring Josh onto the air. Josh, are you there? Yes, I'm here, Beth. Oh, goody, goody, Josh. All right. This came out in something called, well, in from The Guardian. Up to 70% of people in developed countries have seen income stagnate. So see what I'm saying? This is not just an American problem. This whole rightward nationalist movement is being triggered by economic strife 
it's just the way when Hitler came into power in Germany, uh, the German people were in, uh, were in distress. Half a billion people in 25 of the West's richest con- countries suffered from flat or falling pay packets. Packets. See, this is from a British paper, right? Paychecks. In the decade covering the financial and economic crisis of 2008-9, according to a report highlighting the impact of the Great Recession, research by the McKinsey Global Institute found that between 65 and 70 percent of people in 25 advanced countries saw no increase in their earnings between 2005 and 2014. The report found that there had been a dramatic increase in the number of households affected by flat or falling incomes, and that today's younger generation was at at risk of ending up poorer than their parents. Only 2% of households, 10 million people, lived through the period from 1993 to 2005, which was a time of strong growth without seeing their incomes rise. And this MGI said governments had mitigated the impact of the squeeze on incomes through tax cuts and welfare spending, but that even with these taken into account, 20 to 25 pounds of uh, percent of households were no better off in 2014 than they were in 2005. And, see, it noted that people who had seen no increase in their incomes tended to be pessimistic about the future, both of themselves and their children, and were likely to be more negative about removing barriers to trade or migration. Right? And this is the final thing I want to quote from here. Our survey also found that those who are not advancing and not hopeful about the future were more likely than those who were advancing to support to support nationalist political parties. Nationalist really means right-wing, like white nationalists, or, you know, to support nationalist political parties such as France's National Front or in the UK, the support to leave the European Union. And many of these people end up in, you know, supremacist organizations. And so I hope this is enough for us to realize that there's a lot of reasons. Last time Josh was here, it was so great. Everybody loved you, Josh. And uh, we really saw the horrifying income inequality in the country and the impact. And now we're seeing that it's not just here. It's in other nations. We tend to think of other people as more enlightened. Well, they're not always more enlightened. And it's all feeding this right-wing nationalist a movement which is so not in the oneness, but people, it's hard for people to be in the oneness when they're scared, isn't it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> is that a question for me? Yes. It was a question for It was a trick question. If you said no, I was going to hang up on you. Okay. So, uh, but we kind of figured that you wouldn't say no. So, Josh, what are we going to do about it? <laughs> Uh, well, that, that was a whirlwind of statistics you rattled off, Beth, about, <laughs> uh, about inequality today. And, and that uh, report in The Guardian is, is just one more uh, contributing to, to what people already know, that their incomes are not going up. They have not gone up. Uh, the one I point to um, is that a 30-year-old today is doing uh, no better than a 30-year-old 10 uh, or 20 years ago and is actually worse off than one 30 years ago. Um, if you look at 2014, 2004, 1994, and, and 1984. Um, so what that says is that you know we're making significant advances in all of these sectors of the economy. We're doing amazing things with healthcare and, and there's this 
you know, burgeoning um, creation of wealth out there, but the benefits of these advances are not being shared widely among um, the American people at all or, or the people globally. Um, I mean, you mentioned that the United States isn't the only country um, facing significant inequality, and that's absolutely true. There was a study from Oxfam last year that showed 62 people own the same amount of wealth as half the world's population. So that's 62 on one side, <laughs> half the planet on the other side. Hey, that sounds fair to me. <laughs> I mean, I don't see what the problem is. <laughs> right. I, I know, it's so staggering that there's no way. I mean, can you even imagine what that would look like if you put all those people in a room? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, right. what do, I, how many billions of people are on the planet? I don't know. Uh, but I, I really don't know. Three billion I, I'm so, no, so over, over 7 billion. Over 7, 7 billion. billion. There were okay. 3 and a half billion people. Okay, so that's 3 and a half billion people versus 62. Can yeah, it you, creates quite the seesaw, if you think right. of that. <laughs> I mean, can you even picture what 3 and a half billion people looks like? Looks like a continent. It looks like a con. <laughs> it looks like a lot of people eating dirt. You know... Uh, having uh, you know dirty water, uh, having illnesses and no medication, having no chances, uh, having um, really uh, no hope, no decent standard of living. Uh, it, it, it's you know it's hard to even fathom what the other. It's not half. I mean, this is not the other half of the planet because it's a 62 versus half. What the other half lives like. You know, we have so much economic pain in our own nation. But when you leave the country, you see poverty, which would just, it's almost too hard to look at. Right. I mean, what I, what I would say is that, um, you know, for a while we've had the, the wealthy, the 1%, the, the elites, so whatever you you know, want to call them, say that, you know, give me more money and we'll all benefit, right? There's yeah. this, this uh, argument out there that was repeated by very serious people wearing dark suits and, and sitting on in board meetings that people took very seriously that said, if you only um, concentrated more wealth at the top, it would trickle down so that everyone else would benefit. Are you and talking what, about House Speaker Paul Ryan? I, I, I'm talking about people <laughs> like Paul Ryan. I'm talking yeah. about um, people like Mitt Romney. I'm talking yeah. about uh, a number Ronald of people. Reagan. Ronald uh, Reagan, the hero of our Westerns. <laughs> right. So, I mean, you've got that argument that's still very much alive in today's society. However, it's over and over and over being proven to be complete and utterly false. It's just not the lived experience of people, and it's not the statistical reality when you look at the best data we have about the rise of inequality and, and the you know reality that people face when they go to work and when they raise their family and things of that nature. So that, that that's the upside, that, you know, the numbers prove that these people are wrong and where we go from there is you know the big question we've got the 
you know, presidential election coming up in November. Currently, they're debating the platform for both major parties. Um, the Democratic platform is being regarded as the most progressive major party platform in American history, um, which takes seriously these issues of inequality. Um, and the Republican platform is moving almost as far in the opposite direction, saying, yeah. you know, just absolutely cockamamie ideas where people are clinging to these old habits that are not at all reflected in the reality that, that we're living in. Yeah. <laughs> I know it's astounding, isn't it? This makes our job so much more important because we see so much of this divide and conquer is, is uh, being based on people's despair. And it's not only that we have to do something about it in order to help people who are desperate, and that's so many people, but also because only by changing that nature of the, the reality that people are in, is there any chance that people are going to really shift their consciousness? Uh, I mean, I like to think that just pointing out income inequality is going to change people's minds, but it doesn't seem to be enough. You know, we really have to reach people in all kinds of creative ways and show people that there is a chance that we can all benefit because people are so scared. Oh, yeah, affirmative action, blacks, Hispanics, Muslims, they're going to get my job and I'm going to starve, right? I mean, I understand it. We have to deal with the angst of these people, right? Or you only have people like Boris, whatever his name is. And um, did I tell you I have a poor memory? <laughs> Boris Johnson, yeah. Boris Johnson. <laughs> and Donald Trump, I remember his name. Although every, every time I hear it, I shudder. So yeah. it's very not in the oneness. So what are we going to do? I mean, if you look at, if you want, you know, hardening news, if you look at yes. the Democratic platform, yes. um, for the first time ever, uh, the platform acknowledges the racial wealth gap. And, you know, as we know, if you want to solve a problem, you first have to acknowledge that there is a problem. Yes. And if we look back over previous Democratic platforms, and, and very specifically if we looked at 1992 when Bill Clinton was running for president under the Democratic Leadership Council's um, flag and, and running this third way where we're not liberals or conservatives, we're in the middle and, you know, on a anti-tough-on-crime um, yeah. or I should say pro-tough-on-crime um, message, the only references that they make to significant issues of race have to do with crime. They're not talking about the policies in place for, for decades that have prevented people of color from rising to the level of white families. And in the current platform, fast forward to Hillary Rodham Clinton's um, platform that will be in effect when she is on the ballot in November, um, they openly state that there are public policies in place that have prevented generally black and Latino families from generating the levels of wealth and getting ahead in society. And it has nothing to do with things like crime or laziness or, or all of the other racist tropes that exist in American society today. It has to do with public policy, right? It's yeah. not genetic. It's not, yeah. you know, whatever other racist crap you want to put on it. It, yeah. it has to do with the fact that for decades we've left out 
black and Latino families from the wealth building escalator that we created in this country. We, we, you know, probably the biggest expansion in the American middle class came from the GI Bill in the wake of World War II, right? All these GIs came back from war and they were able to get these low interest and no interest loans to buy houses. They were able to access the greatest higher education boom in American history. And, you know, at the time, the best education system in the world. We can no longer claim that, but at the time we could. And, you know, we saw people that were born into poverty rise up. Um, People of color were left out of that. There were blatantly racist policies. There was redlining, which for listeners who haven't heard of the term is basically what it sounds like. Taking a map, taking a red marker, figuring out where the black and, you know, non-white families live and crossing those off from lending. Um, and that was God. federal and the, policy. And, right. Okay. So, but what does it have to do with the GI Bill? I understand redlining in terms of lending. So if you think about how somebody buys a house through the GI Bill, it has to do with an FHA and VA loan, which were not oh, available to, to African-American families because I of see. redlining. Okay. Yeah. So the GI Bill having to do with housing... This, the black and uh, the black and Latino families were left out, were literally redlined out. Right. I mean, the the beneficiaries of the GI Bill and, and the burgeoning middle class of the mid twentieth centuries were overwhelmingly white, and to the exclusion of of black and Latino families. That is. What, what about in education? What Does about it, well in G- the GI Bill? I mean. The thing about racist policies in American history, and, and I actually have a, a, a paper coming out on this uh, cool. in the next month, uh, is that you know it's uh, some of it is explicit. Redlining is probably the most explicit kind of uh, racist policy we have. Um, it's just literally saying if you're black and live in this neighborhood, you can't get a loan, right? <laughs> right. But with right. education policy, it's it's a little bit more a little bit more distinct because at the time. A lot of these institutions were not admitting black students, and at the time, they had you know things like quotas, which is this is all before affirmative action, right? So mm-hmm. um, the the idea that a black person could get you know the fair shake that the white person got at a in, you know state institution or, or elite institution just wasn't there, which is gave rise to the historically black colleges, uh, which are still a treasure in this country, and and sort of allowed a lot of um, in this case, black families, black men, as it was the case, to screw around the sort of racist um, admissions policies of elite institutions at the time. That is fascinating. That is fascinating. You know, I'd love to learn way more about the institutionalization of racism. That is so important for us to really get understand, have the fact, but that is, that is incredible. Um, I myself was, uh, was admitted to an elite college on a quota system. <laughs> you could only have so many Jews at Smith College in 1961. <laughs> right, and, and we've seen that, you know, affirmative action policy has been under attack in the past year. You saw the Supreme Court case earlier this year mm-hmm. in which a white Texan uh, woman who applied to the University of Texas and was not admitted claimed it was, you know, she should have been admitted because of affirmative action. And the Supreme Court struck down her case saying, no, affirmative action is a positive benefit in society. It's, you know, 
should be kept in place. Um, so that that's a, again like another sign of positive uh, turns of our um, sort of shift in our political consciousness around issues of race. We're in no way uh, where we need to be, but there's there's certain little bits where we see a little glimmer of hope where things like affirmative action is is held, upheld at the Supreme Court, the highest court in the land. So, um, you know, that might not have been the case 10, 20, 50 years ago. Where or we, before Anthony Scalia uh, uh, Sure. Um, <laughs> I mean, we were doing very well. Voting rights. I mean, the Supreme Court was al- allowing a lot of progress to go the other way. So, uh, yeah, you know, and a little bit of empathy of what is it like to be in somebody else's shoes would really help there. But beyond empathy, we need to see that everyone is taken care of so people don't feel so scared that they have to fight each other. You know, if you've got like this uh, Hillary adopted uh, Bernie's some most of what Bernie was proposing for free college. And um, if people can get into colleges, they're not going to be so afraid that they're going to be, you know, competing with that black person who might get the scholarship instead of them. So when you make free education available to everybody, then you're not in a race war. And um, it's just that common sense. When we all start getting taken care of, then people will kind of relax because people, you know, we're ego-based creatures. We worry about ourselves. We worry about our children. We worry about our neighborhoods. We worry about our pets, our housing values and all that stuff. We know there's pain and problems on the other side. Yeah, but what about me? That's not going to help me, uh, you know, deal with, pay my bills. Everybody is stressed in our society. I mean, our, our, our workers are all stressed. I would say that if people even at the top, well-paid workers, uh, you know, who call themselves vice presidents are stressed. People are stressed. It's a very insecure uh, kind of economic system we live in. And that feeds this um, venomous uh, energy that we have towards one another because we're not all cared for. So what are you proposing to, ha- how, what are some of the proposals you have for addressing income inequality? Uh, I mean, yeah, the, the, there is, you know, as you know, not a single proposal or a single um, silver bullet that would just magically fix these problems. But there's a number of policies that are so blatantly common sense that once we wonder... <laughs> You know why? Why they aren't already lost? Things like why shouldn't the minimum wage be fifteen dollars an hour? Which why that number, right? So people right. are like, people have been debating this. It's been litigated in, in the in the public sphere, and and the reason is because you know why the the best argument for why conservatives should support a fifteen dollar minimum wage is it's enough to live on in almost every city and place in the country. So I mean, not why, live well, but live. Right. I mean, what we know is that if we pay people less than it costs to live, we're going to end up subsidizing their lives one way or another. We're going to pay for their housing through um, housing vouchers. We're going to pay for their food through food stamps. Um, We're going to pay for their um, schools. And if we don't, you know, say we don't do those things, we're going to pay for their prison cells because that's where people reform to. And on that note... um, I mean, the rise of prison is, is, and the prison industrial complex has been a major theme 
in uh, American politics in the past couple of years. But there was one stat I saw that I wanted to share with you that, um, yeah, I'm I'm a I'm admittedly quite jaded on these topics, and I'm young. I'm 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 too jaded for the age that I am. But in my lifetime, this study shows from 1979 to 2013. That's the parameters we're talking about for this recent study that came from the Department of Education. It showed that education spending K through 12 has increased 107% at the state and local level. Spending on prisons has increased 324%. So what that means is that in the time that I've been alive, yeah. we've tripled the rate that we spend on prisons over what we spend on education. Which yeah. just speaks to an incredibly sick society. Yeah. Like, what what had to go wrong for us to determine that, you know what, we need to spend three times more on prisons than we are on education. And and that's insidious for a dozen reasons. But perhaps the, the one that really throws me, the one that like makes this really sad, is that in that same time period, violent crime fell by 40%. Property crime fell by 52%. And uh. it has nothing to do with these people being in prison. They actually show that the more we increase incarceration levels, the worse impact it has on crime, not better. So there's one theme where you hear on conservative radio that, oh, of course crimes have gone down because all the criminals are in jail. Absolutely not. Not according to the Department of Corrections, not, Department of the, not according to the Department of Education. No, so, I mean, most of our federal prisons are stuffed with drug offenders anyway. Well, and, uh, you know, and drugs, drug dealing is a way to you make a living. I mean, one of the things, you know, we've talked about blacks, we've talked about Hispanics, but, uh, and I do want to get right back to your um, more strategies, but also Native Americans. I mean, we've given them an opportunity to make money off casinos. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's have gambling be the economy of our original people. I, I, you know, it, it's just, ugh. <laughs> it's unreal. Anyway, so back to your strategies. Let's hear some more. So raise the rate, the, the uh, uh Raise the bottom, the raise the floor. Raise the bottoms. Yeah. Maybe they can buy something for, you know, that you're ma- somebody else is making. Uh, yeah. Maybe they don't have to be subsidized. It's like we've seen huge subsidies to Walmart because their workers didn't make it a living wage. Uh, that we're paying for food stamps and all of that. So that's more corporate welfare, if you ask me. Uh, it's corporate socialism. Okay, yeah. next. So, I mean, if we're going to raise, um, you know, the floor, if we're going to bring people at the bottom up, you know, that'll have a big impact on inequality and it'll, and it'll make a big difference in people's lives. But it won't actually get to the root of the problem because the root of the problem isn't just that people are struggling. People have been struggling. What's new is that the social resources have gone, you know, inexplicably concentrating into to fewer and fewer hands. And in order to address that concentration, we need to talk seriously about dismantling it. And the way, to, the most effective way to do that is through the tax code. Um, and I wrote a piece uh, for the American Prospect a while back that says we don't need a guillotine in order to in order to have the level of, <laughs> of inequality reduction. I got some pretty funny comments that people said, What if we want a guillotine to do it? And that's that you know, that's not my politics, but but you know, 
some, some people feel that way about... For about those who aren't aware, the guillotine was used as part of the French Revolution to kill off the French aristocracy that was so incredibly oppressive to everybody else. <laughs> Which we should pay special homage today, Bastille Day, the, the yes. beginning of the French Revolution. Yeah. That's right, July 14th. That's yes, right. indeed. Okay, so tell us, because the Republicans, the even the Trump and Ryan, they're all coming out with these new tax proposals. That's right. going to solve all the problems. Yeah, to cut, to, to, cut, to cut taxes on the wealthy. Right. <laughs> so, so tell us about these tax policies. So everybody wake up. We're going to be talking about taxes, but you should stay awake for this. <laughs> right. I mean, tax policy. I, I, I've experienced this too many times, where you bring up taxes and you can and you can almost literally watch people's eyes roll back in their head. <laughs> um, but you know, the reality is that you can't get to levels reducing inequality without you know changing the way taxes are um, collected in this country. And That's redistributing wealth. That's right. socialism. We can't do that. Well, we can we can do it one way through the tax code, or we can wait for it to happen the other way, like it did in France a couple hundred years ago. And I, for one, should have no thirst for for things like guillotine. Well, you know, I'd like to point out that uh, that the the happiest countries in the world uh, year after year are in Scandinavia, where they have highly progressive taxes, so that there's way less income inequality, and uh, people tend to feel more uh, contentment. Yeah. And, and- I, I I know that's that. I've actually I spent uh, six months in, in Copenhagen a, a few years back and and saw that firsthand. What I think is actually more interesting about Scandinavian countries is is not that they're happier. I think that that is expected from progressives that they see what they're doing in society and like oh, of course they're happy. What people might be more surprised by is the fact that Denmark, um, often the happiest country in the world, is also considered by Forbes constantly uh, year after year to be the best business environment in the mm. world. Wow. Really? You wouldn't expect that, right? I mean, you wouldn't no. expect this, you know, deeply, you know, so- social democracy to be a pro-business environment, but what they've stated openly is that they have, you know, very strong innovation. They have very happy employees. Employers don't have to worry about the complex system of private insurance and disability and and all of the different you know retirement schemes and all the different things that the U.S. has to replace Ooh. the social safety net that doesn't exist here. Uh, um, so I, I mean, like it. Denmark, sure, it's happy, sure, it's socialist, but more importantly, it's a great business environment for folks who you know claim that countries like that don't have the same. Um, you know, business opportunities or that these programs would stifle business. It's just not true. My God. Josh, is this uh, based on different tax system over there? Is that how they get the money to support this? I mean, what are they doing that we're not? What aren't they doing that we're not? Uh, Better question. I mean, the things that if you look at the progressive platform in the United States that we want to take seriously – on just about every issue, maybe short of immigration, their immigration problem, you know, could use some could use some work. But yeah. they have a national health care plan that runs very simply. Hospitals don't have billing centers; they just go in, you get cared for, you go home. Your library card works as the same as your social security card, which works the same as your your health care card. It's all one system that works seamlessly well. Um, 
I mean, yes, they have uh, a high tax rate. Um, they also have something which they call Yuntalov, which don't ask me to spell, but the basic <laughs> premise is that if my neighbor is sad, I can't be happy. If my neighbor is sick, I can't feel fully healthy. It's, it's a more communitarian oh um, society. Really? really? Where is that expressed? I mean, you're saying that that's just kind of in the gestalt of the society, or they talk about that, or... Uh, yeah, I mean, that's one of the principles of, of, of the Danish welfare system and, and it is discussed in schools, it's taught, it's in the curriculums. Um, people have a, an understanding that, you know, we are part of a society and we're better if we're all do, doing well. Um, that's so, called I mean, mutual support in the inner revolution. I mean, this is so, it's like makes you want to get a ticket. yeah and i mean i remember i was staying over there and um a friend of mine his his little sister was getting her first job i think she was 17 and you know he was lamenting that it was below the minimum wage and the minimum wage for an 18 year old was 24 dollars an hour (laughs) Um, and my first job as a as a millennial, my first job was washing dishes at a at a um, private beach club. I was fifteen, and I made seven dollars and a quarter, seven twenty five. Um, which I mean, we don't have to get into what all of our minimum wages are, but inflation has not adjusted that number up. We are still facing a minimum wage of seven dollars. I mean, it's not different from from when I was you know fifteen. So in Denmark. I mean, it was literally three times higher than that uh, for your expected first job. I think she was working in a movie theater. Um, so, I mean, it's just a, it's, it's a, it's a very different uh, mentality in, in, in a lot of the ways that, you know, a well, civilized you, country you were, might be. You were there, and I'd, Lo, I'd really like to ask you, I mean, what about all this thing about if people – have so so do people have a guaranteed income or is it just that uh wages are higher I mean, what is it that they're doing um they don't have guaranteed income the the universal basic income ubi is has not uh expanded out uh just yet they just actually put that on the ballot in switzerland and it it did not succeed right um, sorry, it was it was down yeah so um in denmark um, again, the things they're doing well, they do have a high tax rate, um, which means that they can afford things like universal health care, which means that they don't have medical bankruptcies. They do have high wages, um, which mm-hmm. correspond with their high tax rate. Um, they've effectively eradicated homelessness. There's you know, public home places, there's you know, rent subsidies, they have universal higher education where students actually earn a subsidy when they attend university all the way up to the, through graduate school. Oh, my um, goodness. You mean they can actually go to school without having to work uh, two jobs? Well, let's be clear. There, there's no way that you can work in the United States and afford education at the higher, at, at higher level. I mean, it, it actually, there's just a study out that no matter how many jobs you get, you're still not going to be able to pay the tuition and right but i mean are they also giving you a subsidy for living yeah it's like i think it's yeah i think it's a thousand bucks a month or something it's you know it's not a it's not a lot but for a student it's it's a lifeline and you're not it sure is sure is um yeah so i mean that's 
that's a society that you know invests deeply in its people and they do well because of it. In the U.S., um, if we're if we're judging on that scale, is is coming up pretty pretty far below. Uh, and it has it you know trickles out throughout all of the different aspects of uh, the economy um, between comparing their country. I'm not trying to create. You know, they have their own problems. They're definitely having problems with immigration right now. Yeah. Um, dealing with you know, how to approach the refugee crisis, and they've got yeah. a lot of the sort of insular uh, nativist uh, tendencies there that we have here, mm-hmm. um, and a fear of the other. But on a lot of levels, they've sort of come to terms with, you know, they had that question the same way that, you know, in a lot of ways the U.S. could have turned in that direction with the you know, war on poverty and, and the New Deal and, and these sort of moments where we had a flash of what that might look like. Um, and there's actually, you know, some really good history out. And in these Times magazines I was reading earlier today about how you know, in the 1972 to 1976, we have this huge push for a uh, national health care system, you know, the same kind of single-payer system that we're fighting about now. But we had the Democratic Party basically squashed that because it wasn't the the plan that Jimmy Carter wanted to see and then after that um yeah it was it was Reagan all the way so um you know we had we've had our moments where we could have gone in that direction and we didn't and they you know did what about the problems of the peer people who have no jobs or uh single parents uh you know how do you deal with income inequality. Uh, I don't know how if Denmark does it well or what. What about the people? So we, we get, okay, tax, have higher taxes on the rich, higher corporate taxes, make people pay their taxes, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. But what about, um, what do you do for the many, many people who don't have jobs? Yeah, I mean, you have a welfare system that takes care of people, you know, while they're not working. And there's some people who who can't work, but for most people, they want to work, but can't. They can't find a job. So it's not like I want to sit home. It's that I'm, you know, blocked from from employment, which the if we're paying close attention to employment figures, we always talk about unemployment because it ticks up and down and it gives pundits something to talk about. (laughs) <laughs> but the a, the employment participation ratio, uh, the last I saw, was at an all-time low. So <laughs> things are bad uh, in terms of who's participating in the economy. Uh, yeah. And that's, uh, well, what what do the Danish do for that? Uh, again, it's 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 a welfare system. If you're not working, you you can get a check from the government that can help subsidize your life while you look for a job. And there's okay. a much stronger economy. It's still a market economy. It's not like there's mm-hmm. uh, the New Deal, like hire you know somebody to dig holes and fill them back in, like the Works <laughs> Progress Administration. Um, but 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 there is sort of a subsidy that allows people to get by in, in between employment. Um, which in this country is under constant attack. It's you know we still have unemployment insurance, but if Republicans had their way in Congress, they would have ended it years ago. Right, uh, and there's always a tax on welfare. Yeah. You know, you know what's so fascinating. What is? I'm I'm going to say something very obvious, but that isn't going to stop me. When you're talking about welfare, uh, and you talk about Denmark. Or any of these other nations that are trying to, you know, have give people more and better welfare. 
in our world, the word welfare is stigmatized. It's like, oh, you're on welfare. You know, you're a welfare mother or, you know, you're on SSI. You know, you're on federal welfare because you're disabled or whatever. It's like welfare. Think about the word. It's about wellness and well-being. <laughs> Giving people well-being so that they can be more productive, so that they can be happier, so they can be more peaceful, so maybe get, even get mental health support, whatever. And yet we've taken that word and we've made it a dirty word. And that's the thing that has just been striking me uh, right now as you're, you're sharing. It's like people will hear this program or most of them who should hear it won't, you know, don't want to hear this. But what we need is more welfare. Everyone needs wellness and well-being. And we need a more well society. We do not have a well society. We have a hugely violent society. We have a very addicted society. We have a sick society. We have uh, a lot of domestic abuse society. We have sexual abuse society. We have all of that. And that, that is all an indication to me that people are not well from the boardroom down to the, you know, the mailroom. People are not well. And it's time for us to begin to realize, like what you were saying, that investing in human capital, if you want to call it that, investing in our people, investing in our children. The, uh, the Republican, the new Republican platform is coming out against early childhood education, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, what I, what I think could, could give people a bit of hope in, in light of that, that uh, what, what we're seeing right now is, again, looking to the next generation. There's um, a pollster, political consultant named Frank Luntz, who is probably the most effective political communicator in a generation. Unfortunately, he's put his talents towards helping people like George W. Bush get elected mm. and selling things like, uh, you know, kill the debt tax as a way to protect wealthy people from having to pay their fair share in taxes. Mm. Um, but, but Frank Luntz, you know, by no means a, a progressive or, or someone anyone would confuse as liberal, <laughs> um, came up with a polling recently that showed uh, Americans aged 18 to 26 are, in his words, Frighteningly liberal, uh, <laughs> are forward-thinking. Sixty-one um, percent think that the America's best days are still ahead of us rather than behind us. Eighty-eight percent are somewhat, very, or extremely optimistic about their economic prospects. Um, you know, the the next generation that's going to rise into, into you know, hopefully sooner than later, take control of the political discourse. Uh, has no time for the kind of welfare bashing that that we've seen in previous generations. They're not concerned about the you know types of things that we're seeing out of the um, you know Republican National Convention and, and Donald Trump. They, they they really don't care about any of that. Uh, Isn't that great? Isn't that James? You're going to yes. have to uh, crash through our next show, yes. and then we have to come back. I love this. You're leaving me with some hope, Josh. I need that. <laughs> yes, and also, by the way, uh, do go to his uh, his organization's uh, website, inequality.org, which has lots of things you can do to further the things we're talking about. Thank you. Okay. Jim. 
Next week, is prison industry enterprise helping or exploiting prisoners? Let's ask Tim Grant, owner of a factory in an Arkansas maximum security women's facility. More than 2.3 million Americans are in prison, and over 50% in federal lockup are there for drug offenses. Of the 9% of prisoners who are women, 75% have histories of severe physical abuse by their partner, and 82% suffered serious physical or sexual abuse as girls. They are disproportionately black, and the majority have minor children. Prisoners can be forced to work for minimum or no compensation. The International Labor Organization reported that 2000 to 2011, U.S. prison wages ranged between 23 cents and $1.15 an hour. Prison Industry Enterprises is trying a different approach, creating a for-profit manufacturing sector in prison that is a win-win for companies and inmates. Tim Grant is the owner of such a factory in an Arkansas maximum security women's prison. He says he is giving, giving prisoners decent wages, money to send home, skills to use outside, and a sense of value. Is this program helping or exploiting them? Is it threatening your job? Let's welcome Tim. Learn more and see for ourselves. Over to Beth. Yeah, I'm really curious about that. <laughs> I want to see. Uh, you know, I don't want to be like really prejudiced. And I, I really, really want to be open to see if this is something that in the meantime, and before we burn the jails down, the prisons down, what can we do to help people? Josh, you have made me happy today. <laughs> happy to hear that. <laughs> uh, you know, it seems like, you know, we, were, we grew up in our era in the 40s and the 50s in such an anti-communist, everything was about communism, communism. You couldn't think outside the box. And, uh, you know, you're not allowed to have the kinds of thoughts. And what you're saying to me, it's such common sense. Let's do this. Why don't we try this? And why don't we try that? And I love to hear that the young people who are growing up, they're, they're not hamstrung by that history. I just hope that we have enough sanity in us to make sure that this election goes forward rather than backwards. Otherwise, the millennials of today are going to be facing a much more dismal future, and God knows what's going to happen to our nation. So, again, I want to thank you. Inequality.org, Josh Hoxie, you're great. We really love you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Josh. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Inner Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us.